How's it going, everybody? Uh, today we have Dr. Dan Newmeyer on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Dan Newmeyer has a PhD in exercise phys and also a minor in nutritional science and also used to be a competitive bodybuilder. Uh, you won the junior USAs, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, geez, it seems like ancient times now. Yeah, I think 2012. That was 2012. My, yeah, I think it's the second time I did that. Yeah, I finally got a, the junior uh, level. That was kind of on my way there, I guess, for a little moment there. But yeah, yes, yeah. Was, I mean, that's pretty That's pretty big. I mean, as far as bodybuilding goes, the, the USA's, junior USA's are pretty prestigious, uh, you know, in the bodybuilding circle. Um, I, it's interesting. I actually, I found, I was looking through your old training and I found, um, you used to train with Steve Kuklo mm -hmm. and I, uh, I, it's funny cause I remember in high school, I, I, I would go through like bodybuilders workouts and I would do them. And I definitely have done your chest workout with him a few times. <laughs> uh, that's how I used to, you know, the, the, the old programming where you just copy the pros and what they do sure. in their training and stuff. Sure. Um, that's really cool. Uh, so I would like to talk a little bit about your background. Like how did you find bodybuilding and then where did that like transition to academia occur? Like, were you always interested in, in science and bodybuilding or something sparked that? Good question. So I guess I would always consider myself or categorize myself as a nerd. Um, I liked, I like nerdy things uh, and I always like skeletal muscle. Those are things I was passionate about. Yeah. I remember re, uh, when I was younger, I used to redraw Wolverine and Superman because I, I thought they really just underscored how much muscle they should have as a superhero. <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, kind of nerdy days. But anyways, I always appreciated science, um, but I didn't know a lot about it, but I appreciated it. And, uh, and I, I appreciate the, uh, the uh, intellectual capacity or the, the nerdiness of it and trying to understand uh, science. But it didn't really translate to human physiology, which I later gained a passion for after I was done with high school, uh, I didn't play football. I almost played at a kind of a truck stop town in Iowa, but I, it didn't eventually happen. And I really didn't have an exit uh, or a competitive anything to really do anything. And I was just back down to the typical college age, getting uh, uh, incredibly intoxicated on, on all the weekend nights um, as yeah. a, a college student and no real goal. And it wasn't until I got into bodybuilding and started training and said enough with that lifestyle. And met some great mentors. Uh, one of my great mentors, um, Adam Applegate, who actually won, um, he won the Iowa too, actually went on to collegiate nationals and did really well. And he was a, um, what do you call it? A, I think pre-med, he was an exercise science major at Iowa. And he was one of my dear friends, still dear friends, dear friends, and a great mentor, along with another friend, uh, uh, Brian Willingham, who was a, he's now more of a power lifter, strength mm -hmm. training individual, but uh, all of which we kind of had a, a group Kind of a group, but we also appreciated the scientist that scientific aspects of training, not just the anecdotal. And yeah. um, from that, that just kind of bred the bodybuilding desire in that group in a small town of you know, Iowa City, Iowa, which is not really a meathead playground. But right, and that's actually what drove the my desires in academia is try to get that. It wasn't actually without bodybuilding, I would never had the well. How does that work? Well, I wonder why how it does this. And if that is true, then how does it equal this and this and this? And that's kind of what bred that. And so I would have to actually lean, put my head on the uh, bodybuilding background to go, wow, this is kind of really cool. And yeah. it can't just be explained by something simple. So that's why uh, I would say that's really kind of what drove it. And I already always had a muscle desire background. You got to kind of have the, uh, what's called a prereq of some kind of a body dysmorphic disorder to be a bodybuilder, but right. uh, skeleton, skeleton muscle was kind of my passion. And it's like, well, how can I 
translate these things. And so I guess that would kind of be my bridge and bodybuilding really led to the world of academia and how can I study this? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, essentially what's happened to me over time is, is you, I, I think in, in my journey, wanting to further optimize bodybuilding, I found that the, um, the, the physiology side of things and the scientific side of things is a great way to do that. And it's also just very, very interesting because you, you see the external, you're like, okay, like, you know, I put some muscle on my delts or whatever, but what actually happened? Mm -hmm. How did that occur? And then actually understanding that process may actually help you to do it better. I think that's mm -hmm. kind of where my passion has come from. And I think we see a, a lot more people, um, popping up who, who also have that same passion nowadays. Um, that's really cool. And I, I kind of wanted to discuss off the, off of that, um, with bodybuilding, unfortunately, it seems like there's still like camps, like there's still people mm -hmm. who are like, oh, you know, they rely either heavily on anecdote, um, and their biases, or there are people who maybe are more scientific. Uh, oftentimes the truth lies in the middle and, um, an integrated approach is something where I feel like, you know, when we talk about evidence-based approaches, I feel like it is, especially with bodybuilding, where there isn't a ton of direct research on bodybuilders, mm -hmm. we have to use some anecdote. Um, so my question to you is, is how do we appropriately apply anecdote and how do we avoid using our biases, um, when approaching bodybuilding and muscle growth? That's actually a great question and really hard to uh, <laughs> clearly answer right, right. In, in one podcast show. But, um, you know, there's the, I, I call it the Lane Nortons of the world that are very evidence-based practice and, um, you know, basically are very polar and start the lightning uh, pass of, you know, uh, people nutritioners. And again, anything that involves exercise and nutrition, there's a very cult following. And some people are very cultish on the science side of it, where they become uh, rigorous and they don't necessarily understand the limitations of the science. And so, and then there are other people, again, are on the cultish side where it's anecdotal and they, humans were, were a big mixture of belief systems and we hold on to them very aggressively, no matter what side of fence you live on. Uh, I'm kind of more of the fence sitter. I like to be, you know, where you appreciate both sides, but understand the limitations of both sides while not trying to, you know, uh, push one or the other greater, you know, I'm a very evidence-based practice person, but for giving an example, uh, in my bodybuilding career days, and still to this time when I train, is I, I've never used full range of motion exercise. Mm -hmm. the, the idea was always, how do I maintain constant tension, which would be time under tension on a muscle group? And potentially, does this could this uh, modality or this form of exercise influence uh, muscle growth, uh, what you would call in a non-uniform manner? Meaning, is there a way that in a, if you reduce range of motion, could you optimize certain muscle recruitment and minimize other? Right, right. And so an anecdotally, I made the, oh, yeah, that's what it does, you know, and stuff. But and early in my career, but then it's like, well, you're making a claim. How can you support that with evidence? And the evidence so far is kind of mixed. And we, we wrote a, a, a publication review on some mechanisms and some other things. And other things have been published since then on range of motion, its influence on uh, muscle hypertrophy or growth. And they're actually really conflicting. It's really conflicting. Now, there's some showing some and some other better. And it becomes kind of this tug of war. But I, I think the understanding is uh, the one paper that a lot of people allude to um, as being the that definitively show a, a, a full range of motion having greater hypertrophy actually has some limitations in it also. Because yeah. I mean, for example, I mean, is 90 degrees uh, knee flexion, is that is that actual full range of motion squat? Some would argue no. <laughs> that would right, only right. be, you know, partial. So it just depends on what perspective we're looking for. But I guess my advice is, 
I started like anyone in this world uh, as anecdotal. I see this, does this happen? When you start asking the question, what am I missing? If this does indeed influence this outcome, is this the only factor that is influencing that outcome? Mm-hmm. And so I think when people start learning more about a certain topic or area, they become less rigid, less um, aggressive in their stance and go, Wait a minute, what? Right. maybe I don't know exactly what there is about this. And, you know, that's okay. It really is okay. It's really okay to say, I don't know everything there is. And maybe this range of motion is not um, the greatest thing of all time. And I can also give you some limitations that I've experienced with limited range of motion, but that doesn't mean it, ha- it happened to me, but doesn't mean it's going to happen to everyone else out there. Yeah. And so it's just kind of one of those things that I think the more you know, the less aggressive your stance becomes on certain topics. And so less cultish, less uh, uh, strong belief systems, more just about... I'm, this is what happened, happened to me, but I, I don't fully understand why. So yeah. that's how I sit in perspective. And it also keeps you not arguing with people all day online. Right. Yeah. Anymore. I, no, I know. I, I try to avoid it altogether. It just causes too much yeah. stress for me. So I'm just like, yes. um, I, that makes a lot of sense. So, so if you have maybe a current belief or, or, or some anecdote, maybe look at what the research currently says, right? Understand the limitations of the research as well. And then mm-hmm. you can kind of not draw a conclusion, but maybe have some uh, uh, apply it somehow um, based on, you know, this integration of, hey, this is what have I've, I've observed. This is obviously we don't have the, the, the research is limited, like you said, especially like range of motion, things like that. So what what is where what direction is the re- research point? What have I observed in my practice? And then kind of make an integrated approach based off of that with that kind of. Uh, makes sense of what you said. Yeah, I would agree. Because again, and you and you stated that in, in the realm of bodybuilding, there's just not a whole lot of research to yeah. But I would advertise to people if you want more research, then you got to volunteer and participate. Right, right. <laughs> and if you don't, if you don't want to do that, then you just kind of have to shut up because yeah, right. there's just not a whole lot of uh, research on bodybuilding. But there's not a lot of people that want to follow a certain protocol or follow, yeah, especially follow bodybuilders, right. Yeah. And so therefore, if you don't want to adhere to a certain uh, study design, then you get, you have to shut up and stop complaining yeah. because science, science, you know, it, 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 it's trying to explain something. And if you're not good at following a certain protocol or a, stu- a study design, then you're, then this is why there can't be a whole lot of research done on this. Now, yeah. there's a lot of indirect measures with bodybuilding, but everyone wants these, you know, strong answers, but Again, and it's also related to finance. I mean, who cares about a bunch of meatheads trying to gain muscle? So, you know, it's, yeah. it's hard to answer some of these questions if it's not financially supported. Yeah. So there's a lot of caveats associated, but um, I would say that, you know, we, we, there are obviously needs. We just published, a uh, myself, my colleague, Dr. Webb, published a, a physique fitness, a female bikini. It was during COVID-19, so we only got two people. But we followed them, observed them to see if we could see any changes in any effective age. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really state anything because we didn't manipulate anything and we just followed them so so that's the difference like i said but um if you want to volunteer time to step up to the plate and get involved in the study yeah that's true uh i think Mm -hmm. it's tough to get bodybuilders to um uh adhere to a a program and then i think uh, scott stevenson was talking about how many uh like biopsies he's had out of his quadriceps Mm -hmm. and how many you know how it starts to affect the shape a little bit but Yes. And that's why I'm trying to get a different procedure, not the Bergstrom, which is a big, thick needle. I have a different form that I'm trying to get through here. Yeah. But getting people to, to say, oh, hey, take a piece of my leg muscle, then it's kind of like, uh, I don't want to do that now. Right. And, and so, again, well, then how are we supposed to know what's happening in vitro? True. Yeah. No, that's a, Everyone that, wants uh, this stuff. You know. 
volunteer. Yeah. Volunteer to uh, continue doing this. That's uh, you know, that, that may inspire me to, to do some uh, volunteer work then in the future here. And there are cool. studies out there, just not a whole lot of bodybuilding stuff. Uh, but yeah. a lot of it's obser- observation because again, you have different coaches, different plans, different programs, Case studies, you know, and yeah. And so, how can you you know uh, apply the same stimulus all the time to the same bodybuilding unless you're controlling diet, training, and all these exactly? Things. It's really hard because there's so many variables that it's hard yeah. to control for, or, or or even know what's actually going on, you know, behind the yep. scenes and whatnot. Which only continues to support the well, this is the way I do things. And so I do it right. And, and, and until yeah. you have a consistency, then it just, it, it's hard to examine. Um, but that's again, but that, that's just the world we live in. If it was, if there was a disease related to it, there'd be financially supporting for that, but there's just right. not much with a bunch of meatheads trying to get more muscle. Yeah. And why is it different, different areas? Um, but right. no, I, I would, I would advertise if we have a way of getting more meatheads, female and male involved so we can observe things, the more we can start explaining stuff. But you know, yeah. it, it costs time and money and we right. need both, you know, those things. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, uh, okay. What's, what's your call to action? How can people get involved? Um, you know, if, if they were interested, what's the best way to find, um, places to get involved in research? It's a great question. I, I mean, a couple of labs come up to my, my, I mean, we, we do some stuff here. I, I, I still have a, the one thing going on, but it's female. I, I want mm-hmm. to expand that to males too, a uh, different population. I know that, uh, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld up in New Yorker, he does a lot about, he just did, actually did the same kind of observational study. Dr. Bill Campbell in South Florida, he does oh, some yeah. things. And there's some other guys around the, the country that do it, but it's very limited. Like I said, it's very limited yeah. in that aspect, but it, um, you know, it just depends. And it, and here in Texas, I mean, I could, I could market it, but who's going to drive down from, you know, Dallas for a seven hour, eight hour drive to get in. If you need several analysis during a certain period of time period, this becomes time consuming. Yeah, and absolutely. I would say Corpus Christi is not really a hub of bodybuilding. I mean, like compared to like Dallas and yeah, Houston and San Antonio area. So things become a little uh, li- limited in, in that effect. So, and then it costs the money. You know, one thing I, I always see Dr. Lane Norton arguing people about studies is that who it's supported by, who it's funded by. And man, science is expensive. It's really, really expensive. And trying to get people to, or agencies or industry to pay for a study design is, is difficult. It's not easy. Yeah. And so you, you, you take a population of bodybuilders that are, you know, muscle, gain muscle and lose body fat. All right, cool. Well, who's paying for it? If we're looking at all these very objective biochemical analyses, this becomes very expensive. And yeah. I don't see any people just handing out uh, money in fistfuls to say, oh, we'll measure this, measure this. It's it, again. So these are the things you have to take into consideration. But um, again, I think the more, the more teamwork, but again, there, there's labs all over the country. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to miss a few, but those are some ones that come to my mind right away. But there's, there's more and more research coming out, more and more yeah. research coming out. Absolutely. So I just, just get involved and find out where the publications are happening and see if you can get involved because we need the help, especially if you want more data, we need more help. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have, uh, luckily with social media, that's allowed me to kind of see uh, some of these research will, researchers will post up, hey, we need participants for this study. Um, I've done a, definitely a, a couple surveys at this point, you know, it's not much, mm-hmm. but if I can contribute in any way, it's like, Hey, this is, you know, 10, 30 minutes of your time. Um, that that's always really cool to be able to do that. And social media yes. has allowed us to have that. Um, so if you follow, like I meant a lot of the guys, uh, Dan just mentioned a lot of them post up, Hey, you know, we're doing this study or, you know, we need help with this. Um, so, and then obviously there are, uh, ways to donate as well. And I'm sure if you, um, are interested in like, I think like you know, Bill Campbell's doing great research. If you're interested in his yeah. research, I'm sure there's ways to reach out to him and contribute. Um, and I'm sure same with you, Dan. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Again, we're always looking for, again, and just, I mean, some of these kits that we call that, that cost lots of money. And this is, again, we're talking $500 just for a kit to measure a certain protein related yeah, to skeletal muscle that we wanted. So, I mean, it, and that's not even counting the reagents and all the things that take a muscle sample. So, yeah. there's a lot to go with this. And people, don't understand all the prices that come with it so therefore it's hard it's hard to do the analysis of research but again if people want to get involved i I tell you the you know just just getting involved you know your time because not all always have thousands of dollars to pay people to get in a study either so yeah you know know, right exactly so many limitations and why it makes it much harder but please I would suggest if you have any, you know, anyone that interested in more research around bodybuilders, well, then start seeing if you can contact the people or people you know that may be near there to get yeah. involved. Because I, again, I, I love to answer the questions we did. We found some cool outcome measures with hormones with the um, older uh, bikini competitor. I would like to expand that to males um, and get yeah. more skeletal muscle. And I'd like to get into more, uh, uh, you know, some more analysis, intramuscular analysis if possible, because that's my next step here. More, what, more what did you muscle. observe? Um, so we looked over, we looked over roughly a, a 20 week time period. They mm-hmm. both uh, competed in a national show. And uh, also I think they I'm trying to go by memory. I think they did a, a local one, did a local show, but they, they did a national show. Yeah. We followed, we, we measured uh, metabolic rate. We read, we measured composition. We met via skeletal muscle, lean body mass, fat mass, water. Uh, we directly measured ultrasound musculoskeletal of the deltoid and for females, this is kind of cool. We, we brought out first is the glute max. We actually looked at muscle thickness changes of uh, these females because a lot of females are bikini. That seems to be muscle right. yet that was never measured before in this population, you know, so, or even period as a, a, a measurement. That's why it was kind of cool and translational and rela- relative to, or related to that actual population. Yeah. We measured some hormo- hormones related to um, hunger, ghrelin. Uh, we, re- we measured T3, estrogen, um, what else did we measure? Um, leptin. And we actually, I found some, and luteinizing hormone. Yeah. And we found some cool stuff with the older population or older female relative to the younger female, as far as the difference, but just, there's not much, you, much you can take from it because it's right. Yeah. Yeah. But absolutely. It was, but it was kind of cool in, as far as those. And they actually had very similar adaptations, very similar adaptations. Right. And, and a lot of the cool things we have that people can look at go, Oh, um, this is, this is interesting comparing a, a 44 year old female versus a 32 year old female. And they both had some of the same outcomes, which is really right. kind of cool. Yeah, so yeah definitely. Um, recently there was that, that study floating around. I, I don't know if it was a one study or a meta-analysis. I think it might've been a meta-analysis, um, of the difference in, um, uh, what is it? I think it may have been resting metabolic rate, uh, in different age populations. And they showed like yeah. very little decline amongst yeah. the whole, uh, yep. population. It was like, you know, very, very minimal. Um, and, uh, that, yep, that, that was, I mean, that would, that would be in line with what you just said. Right. Yeah. It's actually really kind of cool, but, it, um, the thing is it's a, it's a large spectrum. They followed them through their lifetime. It wasn't much yeah. of a fall off yeah, after yeah. the age of 45. People think that their metabolic rate just falls off and goes, yeah. goes to sleep. And it has much, much more than that, but right. it, it kind of helped people see that that's not necessarily the case. So that's a cool thing yeah. about science is it takes what our belief system is yeah. Oh. Moves it to the side and says, this is what happened in this population over time. I think we need to be careful about jumping to conclusions based yes, on what yes. we experience or what we think we do. So no, that was a great oh. paper. And that was a great, uh, uh, long, uh, first one to do, I think it was in nature, I believe, like, which is a high level profile journal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, that definitely, uh, anybody who has that, that bias, I mean, I've talked to so many people and they just assume with age that they, their metabolism just slows down. 
Um, and that, that was probably, I saw that got that, that paper got shared so much on social media, like, mm-hmm. because everybody was like, you know, surprised by it, I think, or, or a lot of people were. Um, and, uh, I think some of it was, um, uh, like neat was, was a component and there were some other things like organ mats and whatnot. Um, sure. but I, I wanted to talk so br- briefly on that a little bit more. Um, did you see, did you observe like, um, the same or what we observe generally, like the, the, uh, total daily energy expenditure drops more than, than, um, what a, what an equation would, would have uh, predicted amongst these competitors. Well, we just, we didn't, so we, we measured their food intake, but we, what we did is we measured four or five days prior to every, um, lab visit. So we mm-hmm. only have a limited date as far as food intake now, yeah. which again, doesn't give us a total picture because we didn't keep them in a room and measure. What yeah, we did yeah, see is their metabolic rate actually both of them dropped and it should drop right. because they lost right, right. weight so metabolic rate is completely dependent on so when weight loss goes down so does metabolic rate when people are like, well what that doesn't make any sense um but people make these assumptions that a large a lean body mass uh, increases are going to make a significant change in resting metabolic rate when that actually is not necessarily the case either interesting so small little changes only can equate to uh, 100 calorie kcal expenditure more and it really it, it's it's fairly minimal as far as that now if it's a very very large male with a lot of lean body mass it's much different than someone who gains you know a kilogram of, of lean body mass and on top right. of that it's hard to segregate you know uh, measure directly metabolism by skeletal muscle versus organ tissue at rest uh, the, the, what's doing most of the work is your heart your organ tissues not skeletal muscle so yeah. resting metabolic rate is pretty much determined by organ work at that time than skeletal muscle work mm-hmm. on the flip side during exercise that changes the metabolic rate increases skeletal muscle but we're not measuring that we're measuring red metabolic rate not right, exercise right. rate and so this becomes kind of hard to tease out these things because and, and, and express them appropriately but um they're and again this just becomes a complicated matter that's why i say the more you you learn about it go crap yeah there's so <laughs> many mechanisms of, and so much yeah. s- uh, big picture this gets wise, complicated yeah. this gets yeah. complicated and maybe i need to step back on my my position just go you know what it's cool but i just don't know everything there is to know about yes. it and it's complicated Absolutely. and it's okay it's really okay yeah yeah definitely that's really uh interesting and and, and you again it's like how, how do you get someone in a you know a metabolic chamber you monitor all their training give them food i mean uh, then you start to talk yeah. about the price of that and it's like yes. it becomes a lot for sure yeah that's really yep, cool though. it does um, okay. So uh, you touched on uh, partial versus full range of motion. I just want to talk about that a little bit more. Sure. Um, I think what you were saying with your, your, your experience, um, training with partial ranges and being able to maybe isolate a specific muscle group a little bit better, mm-hmm. um, apply more attention to it. Um, you, I, I believe you have done, you've done, you mentioned you've done some research, uh, with partial versus full range of motion. It, from my understanding that, that, um, area of research is, is fairly limited, Correct. Um, Very correct. So, so if you could just touch on that a little bit more, like where do you think um, the limitations exist with partial versus full range of motion? Um, Where do you see that heading, and 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 maybe uh, how does some of your research uh, fit into that as well? So, I guess it all depends on what you're trying, what your outcome measures. That's what's most important. Is like what, what are you trying to identify? And and I guess from my perspective, I'm not really concerned with strength. I'm not a strength guy. A lot of these strength yeah, guys yeah. are concerned with, and, that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm, um, that, that's just not my, my uh, desire. I'm more of a metabolism guy. I, li- I like skeletal muscle metabolism and how mm-hmm. certain stimulus influences up or down. Right. 
Right. So some of the limitations on uh, range of motion is again, used, used to, we, there's always this battle between what we call internal and external validity. So internal meaning I'm controlling all the factors that may, that help explain how X influences Y, while the external validity means how does it generalize? So mm -hmm. you, in, a, in, a, in a road model, you'll have very high internal validity, but very poor translational aspect. Mm -hmm. In a human model, you can do more of a balance, but there's always this tug of war. What do I want to do? Do I want to be more practical, less, less, uh, um, less internal validity, or do I want to have more accuracy and then maybe less generalizability? So right, right. there is always this tug of war. And, it, and it, 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 you know, I like practicality, but you have to have controls to make sure. So one of the things I've noticed, a lot of limitations in um, uh, range of motion studies, only a few, I believe, actually measure joint range of motion. Um, and which is hard. How do you do that real time unless you have electric goniometer and to show that? And then how do you determine, this is the one of the biggest faulty aspects of any study of range of motion is there is actually no definitive stance on that, uh, the, that this range of motion is optimal for muscle growth. Meaning how do you define what full range of motion is versus partial range of motion? Yeah. Meaning, you know, is, and when you say full range of motion, is that the barbell touching your chest? What happens if, you know, your chest depth is different than someone else's, you know, so we get into all these little variabilities, yeah, it's yeah, kind of like, very true. you know, how do you determine what it is? And, and then, so it's kind of vague where it's like, you know, the fullest range of motion that you can do at that time on that thing. Yep. So, okay. Now, does that have an effect on, um, uh, muscle growth and muscle stimulus? And that's where I start asking, we have to control for different things, different factors. So, and then there's an, you know, the intensity. And as we just discussed that one paper that one alludes to, I think the, 90 degree flexion or parallel was the squat range of motion. So is that optimal or is it need to go lower than that? Is that what a true squat is, is uh, almost uh, where the, basically your, your butt sitting on the back of your heels. Is that actually a true squat? And yeah. can we make the argument? So anyway, so there's a lot of limitations. And I guess what I, what, what needs to be added to these things is how can you maintain generalizability while trying to improve accuracy and control for variables inside the world that could be generalized to meatheads mm -hmm. um, so that we could um, utilize that. So I, in our lab right now, we actually have a range of motion study going on. I've limited student availability. I haven't gotten a lot of students involved. A few are, haven't got a, and then also with COVID-19, it's been troublesome getting uh, yeah. participants come in the lab, but we have a acute study and a training study. We're looking at um, different factors as far as electromyography, measuring electrical activity of all the uh, agonistic musculature, all the muscle that move during a bench press. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, anterior deltoid, pec major, um, as far as sternoclavicular, and then tricep brachii, um, medial lateral. Mm -hmm. We're looking at how range of motion influences myoelectral activity. We're also looking how range of motion influences um, post-exercise uh, edema or, or hyperemia. So everyone mm -hmm. uh, alludes to the, the pump the pump, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're, I'm looking, what we're looking at is there's some kind of influence on uh, pectoral major uh, hyperemia and does range of motion influence localized hyperemia. Mm -hmm. So that's another factor we're looking at post-exercise. We're looking at some lactate um, production as far as uh, uh, glycolytic metabolism. Uh, and then we're also actually, we just added a new component. We're looking at oxygenation. A really kind of cool paper came out not too long ago, looking at range of motion and oxygenation. So when the muscle contracts, as far as blood flow, similar to BFR, it kind of ceases. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If, there, if there's constant contraction, does that limit 
exiting blood flow. And so we're actually measuring muscle uh, hemoglobin content or oxygenation of muscle to see how range of motion influences that too. So we got, I got a, we got a quite a few measures going on right now. That's I cool. had some muscle muscle damage markers associated, but uh, the kits are expensive. And for right now, we just went with basic fundamental measures. Yeah. And then, and we're looking at incline and bench press, flat press, and looking how those differentiate and between uh, these measures. And that's kind of our, our starter uh, portion of that. And again, if you have more, more people, more students, you can actually take a whole lot more measures, but you also have to have more time. Right. Right. So, but that's what we're looking at now to see how that influences that. And if that can blossom into a training study, because acute, that's cool, but acute is acute. It doesn't, mean, yeah, yeah. doesn't really mean much. Right, right. So what does it mean? What does it mean? Training effect? Because right, right. what I think the question we would like to term. answer, exactly. What the question I think we'd like to answer is, does regional fluid or edema content relate to mo- local muscle hypertrophy? Yeah. And that's something I'd like to get to. So everyone's yeah. talking about the pump. But does that pump actually lead to hypertrophy? That's what right. I would like to learn. That's really interesting. And that, and that also is kind of dealing with the range of motion as well. And mm-hmm. um, that occlusion effect that that you may have, mm-hmm. is that different amongst partial versus full? That's mm-hmm. really interesting. That's really, uh, that's, that's a cool area of research for sure. So I, I would love to see uh, that and, and more on that. Cause that's, that's, to me, it's really exciting to, to hear stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's always like wanting to get on that and I hope we can get it. It's just trying to get enough people so we can get the thing in motion. And it's just, yeah. COVID-19 has affected all of us and in research that humans, it's been, it's been a tough sledding. So I'm yeah. hoping we can get things off the ground. Definitely. Have you seen it like, uh, doing a little better since the initial onset of everything? <laughs> yes. Things are coming along, but again, the, the resurgence and, you know, again, uh, students, a lot of people are not trying to, or are not wanting necessarily to get involved. Yeah. In and there's, there's still a lot of, you know, concern environment, rightfully so, but yeah, absolutely. Just, it would be, it would be nice to get into back to some kind of norm, um, where we could start getting some work done where people feel like they're, you know, because in, in, when you get into a laboratory, it's all hands-on close proximities and, yeah. you know, people, you know, so it, it, it becomes tough, you know, so I, I'm, I'm hoping so I'm hoping it gets better because it, it really dampens some of our ability. Now, some of the, the elite labs, you know, they can, they can keep moving forward, but us small timers that <laughs> are trying yeah. to get people in that does become a, a, a troublesome area. Yeah, definitely. A lot of the smaller um, organizations are, are yep. struggling as a result. Yep. So, all right, cool. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit. Um, this is something that is like so prevalent and I feel like we have a, a lot of research in one direction. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's on um, cold water immersion versus uh, heat therapy. And um, I, I definitely see some very like elite level bodybuilders still applying cold water immersion. Um, and I know that it does have a, an, a, an application, like there, there is a use for it, but I don't know if it's being applied appropriately um, mm-hmm. a lot, in a lot of the context that uh, bodybuilders are using it. So um, I know you did some, a little bit of uh, research in, in um, mm-hmm. uh, heat shock proteins and things like that. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that? And then um, wh- what do we know about uh, heat versus cold currently? So I did a presentation at uh, ISSN a couple of years ago, looking at uh, thermotherapy versus cryotherapy. Um, and it, it, with the problem, I think, again, and how it relates basically to muscle growth. Again, it, everything is dependent on your outcome measures, not necessarily, yep. you know, the, um, you know, different markers, or whatever, but the, the marker I, I would say specifically is muscle growth. Mm-hmm. And overall cryotherapy seems to actually have a negative effect on muscle growth. Right. And now, 
Now, this is also understanding and depending on the depth that the cold can actually reach in skeletal muscle. So if a, a bodybuilder, bodybuilder A goes and trains and then goes uh, into some kind of cold water immersion and the, the water is actually a better form of that because it actually comes in contact with the skin and they transfer heat more readily. Can that actually have a positive effect on muscle? And actually most of the data says, no, it actually does not. And the opposite, um, heat therapy, thermotherapy seems to have a benefit uh, as far as vasodilation, as far as cell signaling that introduces some uh, anabolic-like signaling in skeletal muscle. And there seems to be some more positive effects. That doesn't mean definitive by any means, because in yep. the end, it's muscle growth. Just because you have a signal doesn't mean the actual outcome. So we have to be careful with that too. So I would say there's some interesting things as far as thermotherapy on metabolism but that does not necessarily equate to more muscle growth with heat therapy. So that, that needs to be studied. And that's actually an, an interest line that we're looking at in a different, different study. This, but this is more with uh, type two diabetics. We're looking at skeletal muscle cells and then we're actually uh, exposing them to uh, 40 degrees Celsius, which is about three degrees higher than core body temperature to see uh, cellular muscle metabolism. Mm -hmm. And we actually found some cool stuff. I just looked over today. We, our group submitted a publication looking at uh, some different markers um, and we got some feedback from your viewers that we need to uh, fix up, but uh, there's some cool gene expression and some cool uh, molecular expression, gene expression. And I think we're next moving on to some protein expression. So the next thing that we're actually looking at is uh, which I'm intrigued with is looking at how heat stress influences um, amino acid and glucose transporter activity and or content. So at least MRNA transcript, MRNA content. So, we're looking again, there's some questions I want to continue asking. Um, but these are the things that I'm we're moving forward with to answer that question. I just don't know, like I'd, be, I'd like to get to a human line with that, but there seems to be some cool stuff with thermotherapy. The cryotherapy though, and there's, and there's some people out there in academia that are, are still on it, are still aboard. And yeah. I, when you start getting to the strength world though, the strength world are force outcomes. There seems to be some benefit. So maybe mm -hmm. there's some, maybe some neuromuscular uh, uh, benefit from cryotherapy. But as far as just skeletal muscle itself, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of benefit as long as it's hypertrophy, muscle growth, and right. it can actually dampen that outcome. So, um, but, you know, as long as there are, uh, you know, uh, big time professional bodybuilders that look amazing, that are using that methodology and our coaches, good. it's just going to continue moving forward because yeah. everyone wants to use a template. So it doesn't really matter what the science says. I mean, look, Look at LeBron James and he was using whole body cryotherapy. He was, you know, um, does it help? <laughs> right. Well, and it's important to understand, like, I mean, I don't know if LeBron James knew why he was applying it, but uh, for a competitive athlete, it might be beneficial because, you know, the, it, yeah, it, 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 it blunts acute um, adaptive response from, from exercise. But if you have a game yeah. coming up and you need to perform and you mm -hmm. have some pain and some inflammation and, and that lowers yeah. that, then yes, you could probably perform better than if you, you know, you didn't use that modality, but understanding why that is being applied in other sports and, and where, it, where it is actually appropriate to apply it is really important, right? You know, if mm -hmm. you're trying to maximize hypertrophy, you need those adaptations. Um, and so doing something like immersing yourself in a ice bath yep. is a, you know, a, a net negative uh, from, from right. what we can tell, right. On hypertrophy. Um, right. And I, I think, like you said, though, too, it's like, as long as people keep doing it, I think, you know, unfortunately, bodybuilding has this like, um, you know, this collective idea that we need to have pain and suffering. So that's, yes. that's going to be, be, be prevalent as long as that exists in bodybuilding too. Yeah. 
you know, yep. it, the work, the work is, is necessary and hard work is necessary, but um, you know, there doesn't always have to be about that, I guess. No, I agree. And then that's how much of that psychological more so yeah, than yeah. physiological. So. Right, right. Definitely. But we just get into that whole world and it's hard to segregate those, but they play such a role. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We have that, that collective thinking, I think. Um, yeah. So, so if anything, we're looking like it may be heat, if anything were to eventually show that uh, it may help hypertrophy and recovery, right? Yes, it does seem to have some benefit. Again, again, until you have the whole picture, you know, this right. actually shows directly there is hypertrophy more so with heat stress, then it's hard to make that, that significant statement. I mean, even yeah. with increases in lean body mass with heat stress, if there's only like a 0.5 grams, it, 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 you have to be careful. You know, you have to be yeah, careful about these things. So, so we have to be careful, but it's the metabolism. It's, from the perspective, it seems like metabolism seems to lean towards thermotherapy, mm-hmm. less so than cryotherapy. But overall, again, we need a full picture before you can start making those statements right. and a training study, obviously, to see that effect. So, Absolutely. but I, I, I'm, and also, and how do you determine intensity? You know, why is, you know, how is 40 degrees Celsius optimal or 39 degrees optimal, or maybe it's beyond that where it's hundred, yeah. you know, four, six degrees, which is actually detrifying or potentially harmful that right, maybe right, seems exactly. to be optimal. So back to that internal external validity. So everything is kind of like that. Let's you have to be careful. And that's why knowing the science, or at least talking to people that maybe know the science. So you can kind of go, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Now I see why this is problematic or yeah. why this could be used. So it's yeah. just the nuances that become important before you make a conclusion statement on some of these, these uh, outcomes. Yeah. I think practicality is huge there. It's like, you can't yes. throw someone in, in a hot tub with it cranked up to max and burn their skin. Yes. You know, and then and it's, the ethics, then it's, ethics too, it's, right? It's a moot point. Then you start looking, yeah, exactly. Ethical aspect. Exactly. Right. Right. But I think, I mean, I think what you're doing is really important too, because if we didn't understand it on a mechanistic level, on a, on a very deep level, we can't then take a step. Like we, we observe these things yep. on the cellular level, and then we can take a step back and it's like, okay, does this produce the outcome we're looking yes. for in training and stuff? So that that's so important exactly. and uh, that exactly. shouldn't get lost for sure. Exactly. All right, cool. Um, well, I'll get you off here in a sec. I, I just wanted to see if, um, you know, there was anything in the works as far as research, um, anything that you'd like to see done or, or you're working on, obviously that you can discuss. I don't want to, um, you know, press sure. too much, but. No, again, it's just, we're look, trying to get things off the ground. That's, I think the biggest thing and um, trying to get people involved uh, in research. I, I love it. I mean, that's one of the things I love. We don't yeah. really get credit credit as a, as a pre- professor getting people involved in research, but when you love it, it's a huge teaching modality and that's how you get people involved. And some people are just intrinsically nerds. They just want to know more and they just want to yeah. get in the lab and learn stuff. And I think when people understand that you don't have to be a certain type, that's one thing about being a meathead is that you have questions, get in the lab, learn the process. And I think getting in the lab is more is so practical because then you can actually see how all this is done. Everybody wants the end publication, but why not get in the trenches and see how much work this is? Yeah. And, you know, everyone, everyone's, you know, I, I died for 15, 20 weeks. This is really hard. Sure. Have you ever done a research study? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then you could see how complicated it is, how time consuming it is, how many yeah. regulations, so steps and all the process and all the babysitting, all the training and all the, and it becomes, wow, this becomes a lot of work. And yeah, it is a lot of work, but you also appreciate the end product and see the things that can be done. And I think science sometimes is threatening to people where they don't, I don't understand it, well, get in the lab. Now there's obviously some things, protocols you have to follow and things, but um, 
I try to, I don't want to say I, I recruit meathead students, but if I can find meathead students yeah. that want to get involved, I'm like, come on down because there's nothing better than disproving because everyone that, thinks a meathead is just a dumb jock, yeah. right? And right. so why not get into a world where you can be a meathead and know stuff and be, you know, you know, uh, know the laboratory and exercise your ability to understand science and then answer some of these questions that you want to. I think a, a brilliant meathead is something that something to behold. And they're out there. A lot of them are out there. They just need more yeah. of the in, invitations to come in the laboratory and get in the world of academia or even research to understand that they, too, can have that ability. Because if right. I can do it, anybody can do it. Really, right. and I, I make that. I mean, it's kind of sounds justly, but I anyone can really do this work, and it, but it's fun. It's really rewarding um, um, to get that. I mean, obviously, competing is fun, but I mean, research. I mean, it touches a lot of people, a lot of people, and and helps a lot of people more so than I think I could ever do on a bodybuilding stage. Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, something I think about a lot. Uh, is I have this this these two passions, uh, is definitely like learning and, and, and becoming more educated is, is one of them. Um, you know, a lot of people talk a lot about like purpose and whatnot. And I think we, we sometimes get to this point where, uh, and, and in your, in your case, like how can you impact as many people as you can with the knowledge you've been able to gain? And you see that as, Hey, I'm going to do research and this is going to make a, a very large impact more than I could as maybe competing on a, on a bodybuilding stage or, or whatever that might be. Um, and, uh, but on the, on the side of, of learning, it's, it's just, it's such a, from what I found, it's just such a great thing. It's just, it's, it's like you said, once you start to understand, uh, you start to learn how much you don't know. And, 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 it, and for me, that's exciting. Cause I'm like there, I could learn forever. And, uh, it, it definitely, definitely contributes to my purpose a lot where it's like, I could, I could continue to learn these things and, and, and potentially have an impact on, on in the future. But at, at the end of the day, I just love this stuff. I love bodybuilding. I love the science mm-hmm. of bodybuilding and they don't have to be mutually exclusive, you know? Correct. Um, so Correct. I think that's, that's really exciting for me. And you, you don't have to take a side either. You don't have to be on no. one camp or the other. You Not can actually be, you can be both. You can be an independent and be right, both exactly. and go, I, I like, and appreciate both sides and go, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. And also be like, well, there's limitations to both sides, but there's also pros, you know, right. there's all, you know, all my questions that I've come up with as far as bodybuilding are all from anecdotal experiences. Yeah, anecdotal experience sure. drives these questions and right. i think that's beautiful and then if people could continue to ask these questions but i i would advocate you know if, if, if you have a nerdy kind of thing where i want to know more don't stop your education you go out there again and if, if i can do a phd anyone can do a phd yeah and, and maybe maybe they can't because of time and other constraints but again the cool thing about education is that it never stops it never yeah. ends and the more when you think you got it figured out oh <laughs> you really don't and yeah you have much much more to go it's, oh yeah it's, it's frustrating but it's also good why do you want frustrating, to frustrating but but it can be it can be really cool because i mean if you knew everything it's like where where could you go there's no room for improvement but if you yeah. know very little it's like i could continue to learn for the rest of my life and still not know anything and, and that's that's for me that's a really cool thing i guess i don't know it's a great thing it's a great feeling actually yeah definitely all right dan well i'm gonna let you get out of here where can people uh find you get in contact with you if they want to contribute to uh, research. Sure. My email address is on the, um, on my web, on the website, TAMUCC website. I'm the kinesiology okay. department. Welcome to contact me anytime, any, any way. If it goes to my, uh, my, my junk list, I'm sorry. I apologize. There's a phone number. You can continue emailing me. I don't always check my junk list, which is terrible. Um, but again, I'm on Facebook, Instagram. If you follow me, sometimes I'm, I'm more skeptical. I try to keep my Facebook now down to family and things that are people I know because I get up to like 5,000. Instagram, I'm pretty good about following people getting on board. And 
Um, but I, I nerd out a lot. Um, a lot of my social media is for nerding and some and from positive positive stuff. I don't like I don't want negative stuff. I try not to get in that world because I, I we've had enough of that for the last two years. So yeah, yeah. I want I want positive nerdy stuff, and that's what I'm going to go with. So cool. anyone anybody in contact with that, I'd be more than happy to help anyone. I just want to um, hopefully motivate more meatheads to get into to science yeah. and research because that's that's my end goal. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, what you're doing is great, and I think continuing to to have that conversation and get more meatheads and interested in science is, is, is such an important thing right now, especially. So yeah, give Dan a follow. I'll link all of his stuff down below. He posts really cool uh, informational stuff and some memes here and there, which is always good. Uh, so cool. Yeah. Hey, Dan, thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate it, man. Take care now. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.